Today on Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet, The Ghost of Tom Joad, The Album. Hey everybody, welcome to Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet. This is the podcast where we used to talk about every Bruce Springsteen song alphabetically one by one, but now we talk about every Bruce Springsteen album in chronological order. My name is Rob Carmack and I'm joined here as always by J.B. Clark. Rob, how you doing? I think you did that intro in record time. I'm, dude. I'm, I'm three coffees to the wind at this point. Yeah, this is what happens when we really record during the daytime and not at night like we used to back before the world ended. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, so today we're talking about the album "The Ghost of Tom Joe." The album. Uh, this album was released in 1995, November the 21st, 1995, off of Columbia Records, to be precise. This is. Uh, it was released nine months after the release of Bruce's greatest hits CD, which came out. In February of the same year. So in, in one year, Bruce had one of his biggest selling releases and his lowest selling release, all in 1995. 1995 was a was an interesting year for Bruce Springsteen. So uh, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting year. So um, real quick, I, I do want to, because this is how we like to do this, we're, we're talking about the album, but we also need to talk about the year. We need to talk about everything else that was going on that year. And at like in the year 1995, there were lots of other albums that released. And because now we're in the 90s, we're in the era that I can remember when certain albums came out. I was 14 yes. when this album came out. I was in no – as a 14-year-old who spent a lot of time listening to, like, alt-rock radio, I in no way was interested or nor ready for The Ghost of Tom Joad. This was not this was not aimed at me, and it, I did not receive it. I didn't know that – I, I listened to a lot of music in the 90s. I did not know that this existed until I started listening to Bruce Springsteen, like, actively. So um, they, did a, they did a really good job of keeping this one a secret. <laughs> In the 90s. So yeah. um, the other albums, though, that released in 1995, I had a bunch of these. Not all of them, but I had a bunch of them. One was Me Against the World by Tupac. Um, Dangerous Minds soundtrack, which was most famous for uh, Gang- Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. Um, fo- followed up by Weird Al Yankovic's uh, Amish Paradise, which is one of my all-time <laughs> favorite songs. Yes. I, an album I that could we- sing the whole thing right now. Absolutely. I could, for sure. Um, let's see. <laughs> Then you've got uh, Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette, Daydream by Mariah Carey, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, the Beatles Anthology was released in 1995. This was the year, I don't know if, uh, if you remember, you might not be old enough to remember this, but they there was like a, a multi, there, there was a five-part documentary about the Beatles that aired on TV, and it was accompanied by a four-disc box set called The Beatles Anthology. And I... Um, this this was the first Beatles thing I ever owned. Somebody, my one of my parents gave it to me for Christmas, uh, the the anthology box set. And I remember over Thanksgiving weekend visiting my mom and basically spending most of that as a fourteen year old sitting on the floor in her living room watching the Beatles anthology documentary series. So that was that's my earliest Beatles memory. So that that's embedded embedded somewhere in there in the nineteen ninety five. Also from nineteen ninety five, you got the Bins from Radiohead. What's the story? Morning Glory from Oasis. Different Class by Pulp. Post by Bjork. Elliot Smith's self-titled album, uh, To Bring You My Love by P.J. Harvey. The Batman Forever soundtrack, which featured Kiss from a Rose by Seal and Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me by U2. Uh, not a bad soundtrack for a very bad movie. Um, Have you seen there's a video circulating right now of Seals singing? It's it's Kiss from a Rose by Seals. No, but thanks <laughs> for giving me something to Google seals. <laughs> It's really gross. Like, just Seals are gross. Like, it's pretty gross. Yeah. But, um... It's incredible. So, well, I'll, I'm going to put a pin in that and and remember to go back and g- give that one a Google. Uh, let's see. You got "Under the Table and Dreaming" by Dave Matthews Band, "The Woman in Me" by Shania Twain, one of your favorites, uh, "Tiger Lily" by Natalie Merchant, 
Collective Soul self-titled album, Collective Soul. A Boy Named Goo from the Goo Goo Dolls. Deluxe by Better Than Ezra. The Gold Experience by Prince, which I would argue is maybe Prince's most underrated album. Um, Ball Breaker by ACDC. AM by Wilco. So this is the year that we get our very first full-length Wilco album. Um, Days Like This by Van Morrison, a personal favorite of mine. Tales by Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories, which featured, by the way, uh, Stay from the Reality Bite soundtrack. That was a big breakout for Lisa Loeb. Uh, this is just for you, JB. The Jars of Clay debut uh, self-titled album, <laughs> Jars of Clay, featuring... Did the, that one have... Uh, uh, what's the song? Flood. Flood? Absolutely it does. You bet your ass it has yeah. Flood. So then uh, you got Tragic Kingdom. They put a record out in like 2000, uh, maybe like 13 or 14, that I loved. Really? <laughs> and I was never a Jars of Clay fan back I, in the day. I was a big Jars of Clay fan. Um, I've, I admittedly... Everybody was just like, Jars of Clay's real rock and roll. For You know, if you like, or if you're a Christian, you like real rock and roll, you like Jars of Clay. And I was always like, no, it's not. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I saw, I got this ad that was like for people who enjoy... You know, um, it was like Wilco and Death Cab for Cutie or something. And I was like, bullshit. But I looked at it, you know, I was like, but I've got to listen. It was great. It was a great record. Those guys are legit musicians, for sure. I mean, they're very good musicians. Well, and, and quite frankly, theologically, a lot of the Christian music that came out during the 90s does not hold up very well if you just like really look at it from a um, toxic theology lens. But uh, Jars of Clay is one of the rare – Jars of Clay and Jennifer Knapp, I would argue, are, are the two that really – like you can still like examine them and think like, okay, well, this is this is actually kind of fine. <laughs> like I, I don't have any major theological issues with this. So uh, I cannot say the same for Third Day or the Newsboys, but I can say that for Jars of Clay. Uh, let's see. Third Day, Mac Powell. He shows up too much in this podcast for some reason. He does. Oh, Mac because, because Brendan O'Brien produced hair. one of their albums. They, they, have, they have a producer in common with Bruce Springsteen. Oh, that's why they keep coming up. Yeah, it's not. It's not out of nowhere. It's yeah, they like Brendan O'Brien produced one of their records before before he did uh, Devils and Dust, I think. So anyway, uh, yeah, imagine having both those things on your resume. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, then you've got uh, Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt, uh, which was their big breakout. Their uh, Grand Prix by Teenage Fan Club, Mutineer by Warren Zevon, a personal favorite. Uh, Insomniac by Gre- Insomniac by Green Day, which was the follow up to Dookie. Pieces of You by Jewel and Sparkle and Fade by Everclear, and also uh, not for nothing, but Cracked Your View by Hootie and the Blowfish was the number one album of 1995, even though officially it was released in 1994. But because they ke- it kept creeping back up to number one every time they released a new single from that album. Of which there were like a half dozen. So, in spite yeah, of the fact the that the whole it, album is singles, yeah, there's like you can maybe find one song on that album that didn't end up getting like major radio play. That, that song, it was, I mean, it was our our it was the thriller of the '90s. Like they were just um, constantly putting out new singles off that record. Um, anyway, so that was the officially the number one album of 1995, even though even though it came out in 1994. So all in swirling. In the midst of all of those massive albums that came out, and that wasn't even all of them. That was just I just got tired of typing. But um, in, in the midst of all of that, Bruce Springsteen very quietly releases "The Ghost of Tom Jones." So that's the that's the world in which uh, this this album was released. So yeah, I mean the '90s had some powerful. For all of its faults, there's some powerful music. I mean, the 90s were a formative... I mean, we'll, and we'll talk... The bonus episode this week is our top five albums from the 90s. So we'll talk more about this uh, in, in the bonus Which episode. Which may be like our top 10 albums from the 90s. <laughs> I was going to say, I do have a lot of uh, honorable mentions. I have I'm so many honorable mentions. Well, that, and that's Which, the thing. I mean, a few of them will be in your top five, so... That's probably right. Well, and that's the thing is, like, I... The, the 90s for me, that was when I discovered that I love music. So all of the stuff that I first learned, like, all the ways I learned how to, how to listen to music as a teenager, and when I started choosing my own music... All of that was born out of the 90s. So, like, 
I, I have, there's a lot more, it's, it's a lot less clinical for me than like when we do a list of like best of the eighties or best of the seventies, because the nineties are like, I cannot, right. I can't separate my own nostalgia from it. Like, whereas with the seventies, I can be like born to run is objectively good. And rumors is objectively good. You know what I mean? Or Ze- Zeppelin four. But with, um, yeah. with the nineties, it's like, I can't, I can't pull it away from my, all my memories of like driving around in my very first car, listening to the radio, you know, like I, I can't, I can't separate those things in my head. So, um, and a lot of these albums that I just listed are albums that I owned that I don't listen to a lot now, but I still have a there's, – there's a – like Melancholy and Infinite Sadness is, in my opinion, a way too long album and is not something I just enjoy listening to top to bottom. But I, I can't deny all the – like um, the warm feelings I have when I do re-experience re, um, that album, you know? Yeah. So – for sure. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, some basic facts about The Ghost of Tom Joad, the album. This was recorded at Thrill Hill West, a.k.a. Bruce's house in Los Angeles. Uh, he started writing the songs just after they released the Greatest Hits CD. So the entire album was written and recorded between March and September of 1995. And the album is it's 12 tracks, and it consists of seven solo tracks, which is just basically just Bruce and a guitar and five band tracks. And when I say band tracks, I mean there's another musician playing on the album, on, on the song. Sometimes it's like a full band, sometimes it's just like Susie on the violin. But but those count as like band tracks. So it's it's very stripped down. It's it's the most stripped down album Bruce has done since Nebraska. So um this and also it peaked at number 11 on the Billboard on the US Billboard charts in its first week and it um and it did, it did not rise any higher than that. 11 was as high as it would go. Which to most musicians sounds like oh number 11 that's great. But for Bruce Springsteen that that really is underperforming because it um yeah. this is the first album of Bruce's entire career <clears throat> that didn't crack the Billboard top 5 since 1973 with Wild the Innocent and the East Street Shuffle. So from Born to Run through I mean, I, I was going to say through Lucky Town, but through the greatest hit CD, like including Human Touch and Lucky Town, every album that Bruce puts out, at, they don't all get to number one, but they all at the very least get to number five. So, um, so this is the first time he didn't even crack the top 10, which is, I mean, part of it I'm sure is, is marketing. I'm sure they marketed this a lot smaller and uh, that, that's probably indicative of like the tour that Bruce goes on. He goes on a lot of like small venue tour here. Uh, to promote this album, but all, also it's just like this is not like if if you are a Bruce Springsteen fan and you picked up on Bruce with Born in the USA and you followed him through Tunnel of Love and Human Touch and Lucky Town and you just picked up the greatest hit CD and it just it's got all these like big stadium rockers and then this comes out a few months later and you're like wait a minute what like this is you know like you miss Nebraska because you picked him up at Born in the USA so this is the first like truly confusing thing that Bruce has put out you know what I mean. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, it's like, it's not only is it subdued, but it's also very much sort of in the vein of, of like your, your Pete Seegers. It's very, um, folk Americana, but it's also a little political, um, more so than his previous stuff had been. And so it's definitely, I think it peaked at 11. It it opened at 11 and, and never went higher is because I think, you know, probably a lot of people bought it. And then listen to it, and we're like, "What?" <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's hard to. And this, so that's probably why I didn't rise, is because it's one of those that a lot of people were probably disappointed with because it's not, you know, what what he was known for at the time. Well, and he's not getting he. I'm sure not getting the same amount of radio play that he was with like Human Touch and Brilliant Disguise. You know, like there's because that's how that's how you rise. That that's how that's how that's why yeah. Hootie and the Blowfish keeps poking their head back into number 1 because every time it starts to cool off they release another single. But there there are no singles on this album. 
You know, like, I mean, you could maybe, maybe market Youngstown and Ghost of the Tom Joad as singles, but even that's a kind of, of a tough sell based on how they're recorded here. You know, like, they're still, like you said, they're pretty, like, Woody Guthrie, like, sensibility. And that's, it's yeah. hard to just throw that on a radio station and just say, here's the newest one from Bruce Springsteen. Run to your local, you know, music store and pick up the, right, right. Pick up the single. Like, yeah, I don't see a lot of, probably what happened was, like, the hardcore Bruce Springsteen fans picked this up when it first came out. And it was probably a really hard album to promote and evangelize for, you yeah. know? So let, and let, let me exactly what you said, which is like, yeah, it's, it's not, it, it, this is a hard one to just sort of like hand off to a friend and be like, you got to hear this, you know, like you really have to like buy into the premise of this album. Wait till you get to Galveston Bay. <laughs> right. Um, how, how would you like a seven minute long song about a border patrol agent who gets duped by a woman into becoming an accidental drug mule? Because <laughs> we've got that for you. Dude, the first track is like really well produced and he does like really cool melody stuff. And then the rest of the record doesn't sound like that. <laughs> it just gets sadder from there, too. Yeah, it's a tough sell. And and I mean, I say that as somebody like this was and I think my appreciation for this album grew in real time as we did our first season of this podcast, as we went through song by song, because there were a lot of songs that up until we started doing this podcast, I really never gave a second thought to. And we'll talk about which ones those are. Um, but I mean, we mentioned the line in Galveston Bay. Those were definitely two of them. Um, and the, the, the final, I'll, I'll tip my hand a little bit. The final track of this album, even in preparing for this podcast, I forgot that it was there. I almost skipped over it. Like yeah, I, I like Galveston Bay's last track. Right? I did exactly the same thing. Like, why did I, I stop at Galveston, Galveston Bay? Bay a lot, though, ever since our episode, just because, you know, it's one of those like just you know when things keep getting sadder. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, well, it could be worse. <laughs> I mean, this is the anti-Lucky Town, is it not? Yeah. Like, Lucky Town's hey, bro, like... Check out the new Springsteen? Yeah, dude, you'll love it. You've read The Grapes of Wrath, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There, this one comes with a syllabus, and you're really yeah. going to have to... you know, di- there, in fact, there was an Onion headline a while. I think it was an Onion. It's something like The Onion, but it was basically... It was a review of the new December... Like, of a, a new Decemberist album, and it was... <laughs> new Decemberist album comes with 10-page syllabus of uh, unprinted Russian literature... <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I love that Subarist. Me too. But I mean that and I Colin uh Colin yeah, Malloy I retweeted an interview it. with Colin Malloy the other day and like turned it off because it got too pretentious for me. I was like, I don't have time to read all these books he's mentioning right now. Just, yeah. It's so, just gonna make me feel stressed. So but <laughs> And this album really does sort of feel like that. It, it feels like, well, you've got to at the very least see the movie The Grapes of Wrath, if not haven't like read the book. Uh, it would be really helpful. There's some articles about immigration and drug trafficking that would be really useful if you if you if you have them, yeah. if you have a minute, you know, and like if you could just just dust up your knowledge of the Dust Bowl. Um, you yeah. know, it's not directly mentioned, but it really hovers over the whole record as sort of a theme, you yeah. know. And I'm yeah, I'm looking at all this and I'm like, yeah, no wonder my 14 year old self wasn't really like up for this, <laughs> you know, like I uh, yeah. just wasn't wasn't on my radar. So yeah, no wonder my 32 year old self doesn't listen to it every day. <laughs> yeah, it. I mean, well, I have been thinking about it a lot this week, not just because of the podcast, but because it's just I'm just bummed out yeah. <laughs> anyway. So it's like if there's ever a time to really dig into Ghost of Tom Jones, it's now, right? Well, and I do have to wonder, and because we we started talking about this back in January of 2016, the, we we did across the border. That was the very first song of this we talked about in in our first week of the podcast, and it was relatively early in the Donald Trump campaign for president. 
And I remember thinking, like, this feels more relevant now because of the rhetoric that's coming out of one of the Republican nominees or one of the <laughs> candidates, you know. And so I wonder – and because we went through this podcast sort of in real time watching him – go from running for president to official Republican nominee to becoming the president to over time being aggressively hostile towards the people that this album is about. Like, I wonder if we lived in a better timeline, would this album have felt a lot more anachronistic than it, than it does had there not been a Donald Trump candidacy and presidency, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I think there's always something. Do you, do you, have you watched the new season of the good fight? No, I'm I'm saving it up. I'm I've been okay. I've been I've been deep in like comfort food West Wing lately, but but I, I fully plan to get into the good fight soon. There's like a sort of a Twilight Zone storyline where like sometimes when good things happen, bad other smaller bad things don't change. Sometimes it takes a big bad to help us cor- correct a lot of good. I, I'm to correct a lot of little bad, you know. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is like it's not like all of a sudden we are unfeeling towards. Um, refugees and immigrants. It we've is always been. We, yeah, we've always been. Our, our policies on this have always been problematic at best. But yeah. the the thing that the Trump candidacy did was it made me think about it a lot more. And that's on me for having not been paying attention. Like when Bruce was twenty years before I did. Like Bruce put this album twenty five years ago almost. And so, yeah. Um. And and nothing has fundamentally nothing has really changed. If in, if only it if if anything it's just gotten worse. But that it took a demagogue to run for president to make me genuinely like spend time thinking about these questions is that's a problem for me to work out on my own. But but I do I do wonder if if my appreciation for this album has expanded beca- because of that, because I've been paying more attention in the last four years than I was before that. You know, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I remember it lining up pretty pretty significantly the first round through for sure each song you know um and and i was looking over some of my notes and it's just like yeah i was feeling it whenever we were going through the first time and i I, you know i don't know that i would have necessarily been feeling it to the extent that i was then uh but i'm feeling even more now you know (laughs) well yeah because now we're in now we're in like chapter five of the apocalypse. So, so yeah, we're, 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 we're thinking about it, everything a whole lot more than we used to. Uh, but, oh, uh, man. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So let's, let's talk initial thoughts before, before we get into this. So first of all, Tom Jode, and we'll get into this when we get into the title trap, but Tom Jode is of course the main protagonist from the John Steinbeck novel, the grapes of wrath, which is set during the dust bowl slash great depression era. It is about the story of the grapes of wrath. It's about a group of Oklahoma migrants, the Jode family heading West towards California, looking for work and kind of the, the struggles and perils of, of that journey. And, uh, the character of Tom is recently released from prison and he's, he's traveling with his family. And there's a lot of struggle in the midst of that. And, and Tom's character, the thing that makes the Tom Joe character most significant and most famous is in, in the final scene or his quote, not the final scene, but his final scene in, in the book, which is the, I'll be there speech that he makes at the end, which is, um, I'll be everywhere, wherever you look, wherever there's a fight, wherever there's a fight, so hungry people can eat. I'll be there where there's a cop beating up a guy. I'll be there. If Casey knowed why I'll be in the ways they yell. I'm sorry. This is very difficult to read out loud. I'll, I'll be in the ways Guys yell when they're mad, and I'll be in the ways kids laugh when they're hungry, and and they know supper's ready. And when our folks eat the stuff they raise and live in the houses that they build, why I'll be there. So it's basically like I am. Tom Joad is not a, an individual; he's a symbol. He's a symbol of 
the best of humanity and in joining in solidarity with those who struggle the most. So like that's the I'll be there speech is what that's about. It's we are like we are all in our best moments capable of being Tom Joad. Yeah. So um, by the way, which is not totally unlike the statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 25, where he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. And his followers say, when did we do any of those things? And he said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And so he's, you know, he's basically saying like, whenever, whenever you see a struggle and you respond to that, I, I'll be there. So the Tom Joad character is very much a Christ figure in that, in that vein. So, <clears throat> so when Bruce does this, what he's, he's saying when he talks about the ghost of Tom Joad, what he's saying is we, we are trying to acquire and adopt a spirit of solidarity with those who are marginalized. So that's, that is, that is the thematic through line of this record. There are people who are suffering and lots of those people are invisible to most of us. They exist outside the margins of our awareness and our humanity depends on our not turning our eyes away from the suffering of the marginalized people, you know? So, so, so my initial thoughts on this are like, if you're going to look at this album as a whole and you're looking for the thematic through line, that's the thematic through line. What you're looking for is the invisible uh, humanity that we tend to overlook. Um, but the but the people that we don't see are the ones who are suffering the most. Yeah. So I don't know. What are, what are your – but before we get into it, what are your – like the track by track, what are your initial thoughts on this? Like how do you, you – you mentioned like at 32 you don't spend a whole lot of time with this album. And I can't really say I blame you. It's not really just like I'm in the – I'm just going to drive around yeah. listening to this, you know. <laughs> no, I did text you the other day and I was like, what are you listening to? Are you okay? Oh, and I, you were like – Nebraska on vinyl, and I was like, "Dark Rob is dark." Yeah, it was like eleven in the morning. I was like, "I'm already listening to Nebraska on on vinyl." It's, <laughs> that, that's so, what kind of day we're having. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've listened to this record this week because, uh, yeah, because it's sad out there. <laughs> but um, it's, I think it's, I think some of it's really beautiful. I think some of it's like really hard to listen to musically. Um, just is, you know, I don't, I don't love the way he sings this whole record through. Um, but, uh, he, he, I think, I think the, um, the search for truth through the stories of the least of these is, is a really, um, admirable, um, uh, attempt, you know, admirable like concept. So, yeah. well, especially you know, for I someone do. at Bruce's station in life, right? Like he is, he is a massive rock star at this point. He's yeah. at this point, he's won an Oscar you know, for Philadelphia. So he is, he, he is peaking. He, he is, his greatest hits album has just come out. He could not be more famous than he is. And this is what he decides to say like that. That is significant, you know, very, very significant. And like you said, I think there's, uh, there's a nobility in choosing to take all the influence that you've acquired and say something like this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do um, you want to, Oh, but before we get into that, uh, on Twitter, I do want to mention Lori Pierce. I don't know if you saw this. She tweeted at me the other day. Um, she made a comment because in our last episode, I mentioned that that Lucky Town was sort of a response to uh, Tunnel of Love as an album. And her her tweet was, is Ghost of Tom Joad a response to Nebraska? Sort of oh. like po- posing the question. And I'd, I'd really never thought of it other than just like obviously the similarities of those two albums is that like they're, they're the two most stripped down albums that Bruce has ever made. Um, and like followed by massive like stadium hits yeah, or not, either followed by or just proceeding. And so, um, so I, I think there, there really may be something to that. I, I don't know if there's specific tra- Like, I think, I think Lucky Town almost on a track by track situation, you can find it as sort of like a call and response to Tunnel of Love. So I don't know if it's that 
like broken down. I don't know if you can do like a track by track analysis of this. But I do think that this album does expose a, kind of what you mentioned a second ago, which is the notion of a broadening consciousness. Because in if you if you study consciousness theory, which I mean we're all locked in our houses, so obviously we're all studying consciousness theories right now. So right? Why not? Just, yeah. So if you if you study things like spiral dynamics or, or like like different God, like theories thing. on on how how a person's consciousness either expands or contracts, one of the things that you see is there's this insistence that as a as our minds evolve and our consciousness expands, we move out from an awareness of the self towards an awareness of the other. So like our primal nature is for survival, you know, and our, our primary bent is I need food. I need shelter. I need security in some sort of way. But what consciousness theories often posit is like at a certain point, if we achieve those things and we receive a certain amount of comfort or privilege, our, our brains are given the opportunity to sort of expand and wonder. And what will often happen is we'll become, I mean, in, in the best of us, at least we'll become more and more aware of, the needs for other people to have the things that we need. Like our, our primal needs aren't solved just because they've, they've been solved for us. It turns out everybody has those needs. And so um, an ever evolving sense of consciousness is what about, what about somebody else? And so like the, it's like the circle continues to, to broaden and get wider and wider and wider. So if, if Nebraska is about the different disenfranchisement of the self, I would argue Tom Joad is about the disenfranchisement of the other. You know, and so yeah. like Nebraska is like you you can you could argue that Bruce, especially since he does a first person perspective on like um, the, the title song Nebraska, even like when he's singing the, from the perspective of like Charles Starkweather. There's a lot of individualism embedded in Nebraska. Johnny Ninety Nine is one guy. Uh, the the stories in Reason to Believe are about one guy. Highway Patrolman is about one guy. You know, but here it's. The, the, the perspective is broadening because most of the characters in this album are specifically de defined as people of color. And Laurie's talked about this before. But, but this is the first time Bruce has ever done that overtly. I mean, of course, like previous albums can be read through through this lens. But this is the first time it's overtly named. It's the first time you have people who are, we are told, being like who, who are entering into the story from Mexico or they have names that don't sound like white people names. You know what I mean? And so. Right. And so what Bruce here is doing is he's taking he's taking the point of view out of like the standard blue collar New Jersey kind of guy and he's putting it in into the point of view of people who he would not naturally just um w without effort identify with. So mm -hmm. so it is it, like the Nebraska to, to Tom Joad sort of transition, it is sort of about a broadening consciousness. It is I'm moving out of my concern for the self and towards a concern for the other. So that that to me is where I think the um, the analog sort of is between the two albums. I don't know. What are your thoughts on all that? Uh, <laughs> you just talked about spiral dynamics for like <laughs> ten minutes. I mean, I could I could get so, into like the I mean, color points of view. <laughs> uh, no, Moving from orange no, to I think green we're good. And... <laughs> I think we're good on that. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I, that that fully makes sense, and and I fully agree. I mean, even even inside of our own brains, like the further out from the center of our brain we get, the the more we think less about um, animalistically and, and more corporately, you know, like from the deepest center of your brain, it, it is very, uh, it, it is very like, I'm hungry, I'm scared. Um, I want to know. Yeah. And then, um, you know, it's the frontal lobe and the outer, outer areas of your brain where you're processing like spatial awareness and then everything around you. So, yeah. And, and yeah, so inside very center is like feeling and the outside is logic. And so <clears throat> that holds up, I think with, 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 uh, uh, what, what was the word you used? The larger theory of 
consciousness. Consciousness, theories of consciousness. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that's what's going on here is like Nebraska is exploring that like a center part of your brain and, and how you deal with it. And this is, yeah, this is absolutely him for the first time acknowledging in his music explicitly others. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think that's does... a cool. Because, I mean, he will continue to do that more and more. I mean, not as extensively as he does here, but he, he, that just becomes another part of the rest of his records. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. And, and he will continue to do that. I, he, it's not like he, he uses that, that tool one time and puts it away. Like the, in, in fact, we'll talk a little bit there. It, it will very naturally come up later on. We're going to talk about at least one song off of wrecking ball where, um, well, it's all uprising too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes, it is. Um, and, and so, yeah, like it, it is interesting that this, this shows you like Bruce's, not just like coasting, like he's, he's constantly learning and asking new questions and seeing the world through different sets of lenses. And, um, and I, I think even though this is his smallest album possibly ever, um, the, even smaller than Nebraska in terms of just like the, the, the depth of, of its impact, I think this is an important, not unlike human touch and lucky town. Um, th- this is an important transitional phase for him because what it, what, what it's shown us is like Bruce is capable of telling stories that are beyond just his own lived experience. Yeah. So yeah, it is it is interesting. So um do you want to get into the trap by track? We can probably talk more specifically as we go. Um on, yeah, on let's the do it. stuff. All right. So uh track one of this album is the title track, which is The Ghost of Tom Joad. So uh this is a great song. It's it's got a beautiful me- melody, unlike a lot of the songs on this record. It's got a good hook, it's got a chorus. Uh this is by the way, this is one of the only songs in this entire podcast that we'll end up talking about twice during this album run because it, it makes another appearance when we get into high hopes. Um so, so we we will actually get a lot more time to talk about this album or this song. So, tell me what what are your what are your initial thoughts on this on this album that we didn't? I mean, I realize like we're, we're rehashing something we've already discussed, but like what what do you how do you feel about this as the opening track? So I, I love this as the opening track, and and uh, it almost uh, um, it almost is is too good to start the album this way, I guess. Yeah, it, and it sets I mean, the bar I think the rest high. of yeah, I think there's some more good songs. I mean, it's front loaded. The record's front loaded for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. Uh, but this is like this is it is it sets the tone for like this is going to be very subdued. We're going to be talking about some headier stuff here, um, but it's also really like masterfully produced. It's 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 uh, there's like a deaf there's a deft hand at the control booth, you know, and so that is um, definitely something that that I love about the song. And then I think maybe messes me up for some of the rest of the record, you know. Yeah, um, it, yeah, I think so too. I'm like, well, you, it's there. You can do it, you know. <laughs> well, it's, it's not. So, it's not like uh, Human Touch, right? Like Human Touch is the, this amazing opening track, and then the rest of the album mostly doesn't really pay off. Yeah, you know. Yeah. In terms of just like yeah, um, just like bigness and or I don't know what whatever all, all the things that I love about this song outside of Youngstown are not on the rest of this album. Yeah, and that's that's sort of my problem with the album. You know, not this song. Um, so, um, yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah. In, in Bruce's autobiography, he writes um, about his thinking behind the song. He says, the song was the result of an inner debate over two questions. Where does a rich man belong? And what is the work for us to do in our sh- short time here? And I think that's a, that's a powerful thing. Again, it's a powerful thing to Br- for Bruce to be asking within a year of having won an Academy Award and released a Greatest Hits album. You know, like, that's a... 
It's kind of an amazing thing for him to be wrestling with right that. And uh, in fact, uh, later on, or backstage in 1996, so earlier on, uh, Bruce was giving an interview. He was in Canada. And he said to the interviewer, he says, I wasn't saying, where is Tom Joad in the world? I was saying, where is Tom Joad in me? And that, that to me, I think, is the thing that we often don't understand about this album, is that this is not like a, a shaming thing about other people. This is This is a challenge to the self of like... Yeah. Am, am I paying attention? Am I concerned about the other? Or am I standing on a street corner with a sign that says, I want a haircut? Not to just like point people <laughs> out. But are my concerns about myself? Or are my concerns about people who are in more danger than I am? You know? Yeah. Uh, there's this uh, great Kevin Devine lyric. I've been singing the song uh, a ton. Do you like Kevin Devine? Hang on, let me look. <laughs> um. Oh man, I can't remember the name of the song. <laughs> no time flat. All right. This is gonna pay off, I promise. Okay. Yeah, it's just like one of my all-time favorite protest songs, and he's updated it over the years, <laughs> just for whatever's going on. He says, "I watched the debates like can't see straight. If you take abortion away, both sides are just the same." This song was written uh, a, a while back. Um, it still holds up a little pretty well, though. So I'm not very sure why I vote. I'm not sure why I vote because I just don't know what difference it makes. It seems that we get the same shit from them both. Reform don't work. I think it's time we tried revolt. But I don't got the guts to jump out first, so I'll just shout until my throat hurts and I'll curse and I'll curse. <laughs> mm. And that's this sort of question is like. Are you gonna? Are you gonna be there? Are you gonna jump out? Are you gonna be Tom Joad, or yeah. are you just gonna stand on the street corner and shout till your throat hurts? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, and I mean, I feel like this is a thing that we've continued to sort of see in in the public divide over the past. I mean, again, I've I've been mostly paying attention over the past four or five years, but it's been it's been around longer than that. It's just like the the rift is deeper, which is like you have some people who are fighting for individualism and some people who are fighting for the least of these. And it is, it's hard to watch, you know, it, it's, it's yeah. hard. It, it, it can be very, very frustrating to see people that you thought you knew and try really hard to sort of empathize with choose, choose to prioritize the needs of themselves over the vulnerability of the least of these, you know, like yeah. cho- choosing, choosing the spirit of, impatience and um like what whatever whatever i need right now over choosing the ghost of tom joad yeah i think this is a song for sort of like the american church too right oh for sure oh my can gosh. we find tom joad in us i i fully <laughs> intend individuality i fully intend at some at some point to have the musicians at our church perform this song nice maybe not the rage against the machine cover version because it's just one guy <laughs> and a guitar but uh but maybe hey. Yeah, I, you need somebody to do that one. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not doing anything. You're gonna come days. out. <laughs> <laughs> I can make it out this time. I think. <laughs> um, oh, the musicians on this is this is a full band track, which again is is deceptive as an opening track. You know, because yeah. the, the musicians. By the way, the musicians on this track are Gary Talent on bass, Danny Federici on keyboards, um, both uh, previously members of the E Street Band. So, like, that's exciting. I'm sure Gary and Danny were like. Didn't want to call Roy for this one. Okay, I'll come over. <laughs> Just kidding, Bruce. Don't hang up. Don't hang up. I'm coming. I'm coming. Um, and then you got drums. Say what? 
Who plays drums? Gary Malibur uh, plays the drums, uh, yes. who also played on the Lucky Town sessions. Now, that is not... I, at first, I thought, like, wow, like Bruce is like throwing some major shade at Max. But Max was asked. Max was, was officially invited to come out and play on this. But he was already uh, playing for Conan O'Brien, and he, he could not get away for one recording session. So uh, He was busy funny. dressing up like Rambo and mowing down Conan in the elevator. That's right. Which I'm sure there there must have been some amount of satisfaction for Max to be able to to get an invitation from Bruce and say like actually sorry sorry buddy I'm I'm actually busy I have a I have a, a nightly TV gig that I'm I'm doing so thanks for firing me but uh, I'm I'm all full up on my schedule at the moment so um, now that said I've th- oh. got to say that like. I bet that he wanted to be in the studio. I bet you're you know? right. Well, I, I, Max does not strike me as a petty individual. Danny Federici does, no. but Max, Max doesn't. <laughs> um, now, now later on, and we'll, we'll talk more about this when we get into, I want to say it's the magic, to either the rising or the magic, but there, there, there is an instance where Max takes a very long hiatus from the Conan O'Brien show. And I don't know if we've talked about this. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this again when we get into later stuff, but... Um, when when Bruce gets the band back together and goes out, I think again, I think it's on the Rising tour, and Max gets, I want to say he gets like nine months off to go and tour with Bruce, and one of the stars of Friends, and I've never, it's never been confirmed which Friends star this was. I'm guessing probably Jennifer Aniston or Courtney Cox, uh, went to the president of NBC and asked for three months off to shoot a movie, and they told them no, and their rebuttal was, how come Max Weinberg gets nine months off to tour with Bruce Springsteen? I went three months off to shoot a movie, and you say no. And the president of NBC, apparent, according to sources, the president of NBC's response to that was, listen, you call me the minute Bruce Springsteen wants you to go on tour and play drums with him, and you can go. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. I love that. Everybody loves Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen is special treatment everywhere he goes. Anyway, yeah. so, um, oh, and so, yeah, Gary Malibur's playing uh, drums, and then Susie Tyrell is playing violin. So that's the that's the lineup here on, on Yeah, this Susie does great. The pedal steel's awesome. The, the drums are, they're simple, but they're played so quietly. It's, it's not like things are turned down in the mix. It's like the performances are so quiet that you can hear the pick scrapes on the guitar. Um, oh. And yeah, and uh, Marty Rifkin, that's, that's Marty Rifkin on steel guitar. And he he had just come off of playing uh, for Tom Petty on the Wildflower Sessions. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's track one. We were, wow, we are dragging our feet. That's on, that's on me. For, that, that's my fault for talking about consciousness for 10 minutes. So Consciousness theory. Um, spiral dynamics. Spiral dynamics. We should have done the colors. Sure. <laughs> hey, man, if, if we got time, I'll, I'll do the colors. Um, <laughs> I've done it before. All right, so uh, let's let's move on to track two. We we can talk about track two, which is straight time. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was like waiting on something to happen. No, this is which is you and me talking. Nothing's gonna happen. Right. It's just the two of us. I was waiting on like a a, a clip to play, or I don't know what. We've been doing this so long. You're like, and the needle drops now. I'm like, no, that's that's manufactured. We yeah. Hear that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This one I think is a good song too. Um, I, I like it a lot. I do too. I think I rated it pretty high. Uh, five. You gave it a four. Yeah. Um, it's similar in, to the last one. It, it, it's kind of um, pedal steel, fiddle, bass, uh, really quiet performance. Um, it's really great. Um, it reminds me of one of my favorite um, instrumental records called uh, Modern Country by William Tyler. It's just a nice, sad song yeah. about getting out of prison, getting clean. This could know? have been a Johnny Cash song. Yeah. Just trying to. Just trying to live the straight life, you know. Yeah, it's um, 
and this this sort of follows along the through line um, in, in that it's it's about a particular kind of marginalized person, and the marginalized person is like a person who has been released from prison. And of course, a lot a lot of ink has been spilled talking about like the struggles of people who have come out of the criminal justice system and found it difficult to reenter society on any number of levels. Um, and in fact, there's a, the, as I was listening to it, it reminded me of a couple of movies. Uh, one is the Shawshank Redemption. You know, very famously, like the the, yeah. the segment after the um the brooks character gets out of of prison and he doesn't know how to function in society it's like, like looking through the window of the hat store yeah and and they thinking about going back yeah like like the the fear of entering society and not knowing how to sort of live life because he's been in prison so long he doesn't know how to he doesn't know how to do straight time and yeah. um and then the the second one was the movie heat which also came out in 1995 um and i remember have you have you ever seen the movie heat yeah. Okay. I figured you had. I just don't. I don't want to assume. But you know the scene, the Dennis Haysbert character, the the getaway driver, who's he's trying to work a a, str- a job, a straight job as a cook in a diner, and then towards the end of the movie, the De Niro character comes to him and is like, "Hey, we need a getaway driver," and and the guy goes and, um, spoiler alert, it does not go great for for the getaway right. driver. Um, <laughs> but in fact, he becomes a ref- just a reference to getaway drivers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a cautionary tale for other getaway drivers at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it, it does sort of, it kind of harkens back to like how difficult it is for a person to, to leave the criminal justice system and reenter society and not continue to feel uneasy or, or marginalized in some sort of way. And, and we, we had some, yeah. I, I think we had an email, um, early on when we first talked about this, about like people having sort of disagreements about what this song is about, but Bruce, um, introduced the song on, on stage by saying this, he says, this is a quote. He says, this is a song about how it's hard to be a saint in the city, I guess. Um, which nicely done, Bruce. And he says, a fellow gets out of prison trying, trying to find his way back into his family and back into the world, trying to learn how to be new. I think about every, I think everybody reaches a place where their old answers and their old ways of doing things run out on them, but it's hard to let things go. Sometimes those are things that just, uh, that just feel like you. They're how you know yourself. And even, and even if they're, they're the things that are killing you, so somebody's done a little straight time. So everybody's done a little straight time. So basically, it's like trying to find normal in in a space that you, you're having a really, really hard time to find. Which again, like that feels somewhat relevant right now. Like right. everything just right. feels a little bit <laughs> off its axis. Everything feels a little bit off center, and uh, and that is that is especially true for people who have um, come out of the criminal justice system and not been able to get a job or find a place to live, or um, or, or be able to do anything other than return to a life of crime because like that's the only way that they know how to make money and it's the only way society seems to be willing to let them make money. So um yeah. so there is I mean there's so many different cautionary tales that sort of echo this very sentiment. So um yeah, I'm reading Riding the Rap by Elmore Leonard, part of the Raylan Givens oh, I love series. Oh, Givens series. Yeah. Uh and it reminds me of that. So totally. if you've seen Justified, it's the books that that show's based off of. Just, Justified yeah, that's, is one of my all-time totally reminds shows. me of that. Yeah. that. Totally. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I can't see Timothy Oliphant not in a cowboy hat, you know? No, he's, he's, he will, he is forever and always Raylan Givens. So, um, yeah. Always. So then we go into track three, which is Highway 29. You, I, if my memory serves, you gave this a five. I did. So you are straight fives so far on this album. Yeah. I think I gave the first four tracks of this record five. Yes, you did. I don't, I don't know that that's maybe correct in hindsight. Right? You, you I, but think I don't you, you know. You were that too strong on it. Either. 
Um, I don't know. I, I like this song. <laughs> All right, tell me about. You know, I just, it's I got it going right now. It's nice. Talk, um, talk to me about what what strikes you about this song. I just like the way it's picked. I kind of like the way he sings it. You know, it's just like at that old sort of country storyteller. You know, feeling. She slipped me a number. I put it in my pocket. It's just like, it's very. Um, it's it's like all the little details, you know. Yeah, it's very. So. Yeah, it's very intricately written. Like Bruce does a really good job creating this world and these characters. Yeah, and it's like sexy. It's it's sex, it's sexy without being super like explicitly sexual. Uh, like it it implies. Um, like it gets pretty, you know, like my hand slipped over skirt and then but everything slipped my mind. So it's like slip me your number, slip from my pocket, slipped over skirt, slipped my mind. It's very um I don't know. I, I like the meter of it, I like the way it flows. Um Yeah. I don't know. Here here's my problem with the song. I think it's a good song. All by itself. I think this would have been a fine outtake from these sessions. Um I don't think it belongs on this record. I, I think this feels a lot more like a Nebraska outtake because First of all, the person, the main character in in the story is not what we would consider a marginalized or disenfranchised person. He's got a job. Yeah. He he has access he he um to a gun. He's he's being hit on by a strange woman. Like he in no way matches the description of the characters of the other characters in the song and in, in this album. There there are a couple of other songs from these sessions that I think probably would have been a better fit. And and if if I had been if I'd been in the studio with Bruce and, and tracking this album for him, I would have pulled this song off of this record and I would have replaced it with brothers under the bridge. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I agree. It doesn't necessarily fit. It, honestly, it could, it could be on uh like working on a dream. <laughs> Actually. Yeah. yeah uh, it would have been fine. on working on a dream. Yeah. I think it would be better than a couple songs on there. Uh, yeah. I think I like it so much because it's just like, it's, it's one of the uh, sort of sonically pleasing songs on this record, you know, where yeah. other times it's a little more sort of jostly. So it, and there's not a lot to it. It's just nice. It's a good folk song for sure. It yeah. just, uh, I, if I'm looking for the the narrative arc, it's th- this is to to me this doesn't fit. Yeah, and this is one place where he, he really starts to figure out that synth pad without it being obnoxious <laughs> in the background. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I like that. Yeah. So uh, we've got that, and then um, then we've got track four, which is the other standout song of of the record, which is Youngstown. Which I think I feel like we recorded a a beast of an episode on this. I was gonna say yeah, we, and if I remember correctly, relatively recently. It was towards the end of last year, so we're we're pretty fresh off yeah. of this one. So I don't know if we need to spend a whole lot of time. It's it is still in the feed. You can go go back and find it. Um, but in, it's a great great song. I, and I, yeah, and I I think we we did a, we spent a lot of time talking about the context of the song. But it is in short, it is about the rise and fall of a real town in Ohio, and about sort of like they they manufactured weapons. There was a uh, a steel mill. Um, yeah, and there, there's a line that's, uh, about the song that says, "What Hitler couldn't do, they did for him," um, which is basically a way of saying that uh, the town was devastated not by war but by economic ruin. Yeah. And and I mentioned before, like uh, Wrecking Ball, there like, I, I would argue like a kind of sequel to this song is "Death to My Hometown." You know, just like 100%. The, the the overall sentiment of you know, like yeah, it didn't take war to destroy this town. All it took was um, the jobs to go somewhere else. Well, and, and yeah, Wrecking Ball, uh, that record is not unlike this song, like sonically, too. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with Susie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the way she plays on Wrecking Ball, and the way she, Susie is great on the song. And like the song is sort of sad and slow. And then when she, when she comes in, man, it just gets minor and sad and 
dark, you know, like you just feel the smog clouds rolling in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, it's good. It's great. It's a great song. It is a great song. And I, I love the melody. We talked about like the live cuts of the song, like the, the, the Nils Lofgren guitar solos are just like straight up on fire. Yeah. Uh, th- this song, th- this is a, this is a barn burner when he does it live. I, I, um, I love the live cuts of this song so much. Um, but the overall, the theme, thematically, this fits really, really well because it's, it's about how we use, like, there are certain types of people in our society and we use them and we praise them when we need something from them. And then when we're done with them, we fully abandon them. And as I was listening to this record yesterday, I was sort of struck by when this pandemic is over, will we go back to undervaluing medical workers, service workers, teachers, um, grocery store work? You know what I mean? Like, will we go back to treating that group of people like an invisible class? And I don't want to be... hope we still keep doing uh, flyovers for him. Yeah. Um, or, or like, <laughs> like clapping, like, or telling if you see somebody in scrubs, like what, what if we treated people in scrubs the same way we treat people who we see in uniform and just say, Hey, thank you for your service. You know right? what I mean? Um, and I don't want to be yeah. seen, but I don't want, what I... if we took all the money that we spent on flyovers and paid them? Hey, that's a great idea. Why don't we do that? I mean, I get I get flight hours and all that required flight hours. Like, we're it's not an additional cost sometimes, but it does still. seem it does seem indulgent when we're like, can we just have masks and tests? And they're like, what if the blue angels fly over your house? Like, cool. Uh, we still would like some masks, please. Yes. <laughs> um. So yeah, and uh, I don't want to be cynical, but based on our history, it does seem likely that five years from now, when we're talking about this pandemic as if it were history. At least, God, I hope we're still. I hope we're talking about it like it was history. But I, I do wonder: Will we go back to like, like not making eye contact with people in the grocery store because they don't matter enough to us, or you know, or, or seeing people in scrubs and not taking the time to honor the sacrifice that they're making, you know? And so, I, I, I would like to think that I, I will never go back to taking that group of people for granted. But um, I, I do wonder if like. 30 years from now, Jason Isbell, being the future's Bruce Springsteen, if he, he's going to write a song called, like, Hospital Worker or something like that, and it's going to sound a lot like Youngstown, you know? Yeah. <laughs> About, like, the Vanderbilt Medical School. Yeah. Here at Vanderbilt. <laughs> oh, man. It's going to happen, man. Anyway, so I, I don't have any other thoughts on this song that we didn't already say a few months ago. Do you, do you yeah, no, we wore it out, man. Yeah. Uh can hop on over to Sinaloa Cowboys. Sinaloa Cowboys, yeah. So, uh, have- which I'm kind of excited about this more so now than I was when we first did it because I've been watching Narcos Mexico. <laughs> Ooh, I need to get caught up on that as well. It's uh, Narcos Mexico is so good, hmm. and uh, it's about like the Sinaloan cartel, and it's very interesting. Yeah. So the the main characters here, you got these two brothers, Miguel and Luis who crossed the border from Mexico into California. And and there's this ominous sort of foreshadowing that happens early in, in the story, which is someone says to them, for everything the North gives, it exacts a price in return. And that foreshadowing is paid off when um, Luis is killed in an explosion of a, a meth lab explosion. So, uh, so they, they come over, they're working the orchards, they're picking produce, they're doing jobs that white folk don't want to do. And, um, but they're not making enough money. And so they end up kind of getting sucked into, uh, working in a meth lab and, and then the explosion kills Luis. And, and so then Miguel takes Luis's body and he buries it and kind of basically just like throws the money, the, the $10,000 away, basically like the blood money that cost Luis's life. And so there is, and, and these are things that happen all the time. And, and this is one of those sorts of things that you, you might hear people talking about, like 
drugs and cartels and people who um, are are serving as either drug mules or or working in these meth labs. And, and you think like, man, it, it, the rhetoric be, like is basically like demonizing them or criminalizing them. And th- what the song does really ad- like really well is it's a way of saying like. These aren't people who are doing this because they're greedy. They're 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 doing it because they're desperate, you know. And so, yeah. um, and people are dying. Like people are dying because they've been working in unsafe meth labs because that's the only thing they can do to not starve to death. And Bruce does this again. It's a masterful job of looking at the world through the eyes of, of people he will never meet, and and telling a story that is so powerful and so compelling, and so tragic. Like the next couple songs, like. I think somebody dies or is fully dissolute. Like the next three songs are just like, ugh, like three gut punches right in a row. Yeah. So, there's a lot of uh, death in the, in the next couple songs. Yeah. I mean, this is, this album has a pretty high body count for a Bruce Springsteen album. So, um, any, I don't, I don't really have anything else other than like, as far as, again, the narrative through line here is fully realized with the song. Yeah. Well, uh, I gotta say, um, that I am impressed with Bruce. And I said this in our original episode, but I'm very impressed with Bruce's. And there was a small tin shack on the edge of a ravine. Miguel and Louise stood cooking methamphetamine. <laughs> yeah. It's not, and, a, it's not a rhyme you naturally expect to show up in a song. <laughs> I know. And it's so good. And Jason Isbell honors that. Speaking of Jason Isbell being the the uh, sort of uh, air and spirit mm-hmm. to the songwriting, uh, you know, the king of songwriting. He says, uh, you can you can strip in Portland from the day you turned 16, you got one thing to sell and benzodiazepine. Uh, <laughs> He's great at that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that's the only time that he puts like a long, a long drug name in one of his songs, so, like a pharmaceutical. So. He, do, he his, his rhyme schemes are always like, I, I was just listening to, um, the, I forget which song it, I want I, it might be Molotov where he says, when, when you told me we had the same three wishes, I hoped you weren't being facetious. Yeah, like, well, it helps nice. that he's got like such an Alabama, like a hill country accent. Yeah, that he can either do it in English or in hill country, so he's got sort of like two languages that he can work with. That's very true. Yeah. So uh, yeah, man, Sinaloa cow methamphetamine not not an easy thing to rhyme, but he does it. So then uh, we go into track six, which is the line. This is a very long song about a guy who's discharged from the army. He joins the INS after his wife dies. He works along the Southern California border. He's partnered with a guy named Bobby Ramirez. The story has a lot of twists and turns. Veteran. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, yeah, the story has a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of a lot of big surprises, a lot of new characters that are introduced, and ultimately, the guy is duped into smuggling drugs by a woman named Louisa. And um, and then he uh, soon soon after he retires from from the INS. So th- that's that's the basic overall idea. And it, it's, it's interesting. Like in track five, he takes the perspective of the the guys who come over and are cooking meth. And in this one, he takes the perspective of somebody who's uh, p- supposed to be patrolling the border um, and sort of encounters a crisis of conscience in the midst of that. Yeah. Have you read the book, The Line Becomes a River? I read it solely based on your recommendation a couple of years ago, and it was very good. This song reminds me of that a lot. Very this much This record so. reminds me of that book a lot. It's a memoir uh, that makes me happy that you read it based on my rec. Um, not, it wouldn't be the last one either. I just finished Heating and Cooling. <laughs> That's such a good book. It is. I loved it. You, you've recommended a lot of good books. I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate that you as well. I've read a lot of great books thanks to you. Um, but the um, the the it's basically a memoir um, written from the perspective of a Mexican American border patrol agent, um, who is he's like a really smart guy, and his mom, if I remember correctly, like didn't really want him to be a border patrol agent, but he was like, I feel like I have to do this for our people, you know. And uh, it's super interesting, really good. Anyway, deals so. with a lot of the same stuff uh, twenty years later, so. 
Very much so. Um, so then in track seven, you've got Balboa Park. And I remember specifically kind of being fascinated by all the, the nicknames yeah. on this one, specifically <laughs> Little Spider. I think we've referenced Little Spider a lot. Uh, especially in the first, like, year. Yeah. Man, we talked about X-Men and Coach Ice and yeah. uh, Little Spider. And, it's quite a cast uh, of characters. <laughs> yeah. So Little Spider is the character here, and he spends his early years as a drug mule, uh, quote, swallowing balloons of cocaine, crossing the border and sleeping Golly. in shelters and under the freeway. So, like, he's not having a, a good life. Um, and then he, he ultimately meets his end when he is hit by a car and dies in the street. So this is... Uh, th- again, thematically, very on point. It's about um, it's about someone who is largely just totally invisible in our society, uh, at risk every single day, and dies um, anonymously in the street. Yeah, known only by his nickname, Little Spider. Yeah, dude, I remember being like laughing at this song, and also just being like incredibly sad i remember both of us were like the song is so sad it's very sad but we couldn't help but laughing about little spider just the nickname too also i cannot can you imagine what would it feel like if one of those balloons got a hole in it i mean i think that that happens right like that's a that that is a that's a real risk that people face and can you imagine just the amount of sweat no and eye bulging that would happen (laughs) oh oh no that it's terrifying I, yeah. I can't imagine how desperate a person must be to be willing to swallow a balloon full of cocaine and like just have it in you. Yeah, no, for sure. So, um, so yeah, that's Balboa Park, and then uh, track eight is Dry Lightning. Willie Nelson has covered this song. Yeah, that's cool. It it is. It sounds like a Willie Nelson B side. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, it's almost finger picking. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, the finger picking. Yeah, it was all a lot of finger picking. Uh, this almost feels a little bit like a close relative to Candy's Room, a little bit thematically, because the guy is in love with the dancer, and it doesn't seem like his affection is returned. You know, it definitely seems like a he keeps going and like visiting this this lady, and um, it, it, he says, "I chased the heat of her blood like it was the Holy Grail," and and so it's basically it's a it's good a, line. It is a good line. There's a lot of really good lyrics in this on this album, but uh, so Dry Lightning. We talked about this when we did the original episode, but is it is this weather phenomenon? It's it, it is lightning that ne- is never followed by any kind of actual storm, and so it's a warning sign with no payoff. So it, it's a nice song. I'm not sure it specifically connects to the theme, unless you think of loneliness as a type of marginalization. Yeah. Um, which I mean, you could if if this guy if if this guy's whole life is basically lived in isolation, and like the only human contact he has is with this dancer who doesn't care about him. Then I mean, yeah, you, you could you could say that 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 is a type of marginalization. It's it's not the same type of marginalization that you're seeing from guys like uh, Little Spider or Miguel and Luis, but um, but but it is if, if you needed to like if if the if the ghost of Tom Joe calls us to to pay attention to people who are not being paid attention to, um, are the the individuals in our midst who are perpetually lonely might be might be one that you could make some space for. You know? Yeah, I, I think that lonely is is definitely like a, a, another uh, and a dangerous one, you know. Sure, and I think I think we're seeing that that kind of bear out right now as people are dealing with all sort of the psychological fallout of having been isolated for two months so far, at least two months. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts on on this particular song? Uh, I just you got to be real sad to see a vibrant, beautiful, bright yellow sun as piss yellow. That's I forgot about that line, piss yellow. Yeah. <laughs> 
We were off air talking about the difference between piss and pee the other day. Yes, we were. Like the narrative, the literary uh, difference, and it was great. Because those are the things we talk about when we when we discuss things. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it is a pretty song, though. I I, I like uh, melodically. I think I think it's very good. Dry lightning. Yeah, I love the guitar. Mm-hmm. It just makes me feel some kind of way. I, it tingles my back. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, then you've got the new timer. Uh, this this okay. also could have been a Nebraska song. It's about your. It's about a young hobo who learns the ropes from an old hobo who is eventually murdered. And by the end, the narrator, the previously young hobo, feels angry and he feels ready to kill. I, I, don't, I don't really know what to think I, about this song. It's fine. This is like season three of the show Baskets. <laughs> I've not seen Baskets, but... <laughs> it gets, it's so funny, and then it just gets so dark all of a sudden. It's such a weird show. It's the most Zach Galifianakis thing that's been... You know, the world's been allowed to see. Uh, <laughs> Maybe something else to delves, check out soon. Delves deep into his weird psyche. Yeah. So. Oof. But, uh, yeah, yeah. there's there's not a lot musically going on. Just yeah. guitar and him doing his folk croon. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I got nothing, man. I, I, don't, I don't even know if it – I mean, I, I guess, again, it, like if – I, I suppose it could fit into the theme because – it, it kind of goes into like victims of violence that nobody thinks about or n- and nobody's paying attention to. Like the, the old guy after he's murdered, like no, like part, part of this guy's problem is like he's, he's murdered and it doesn't really seem to matter to anybody, you know? And so when's the, what, when's the last time you went to like this, the Fort Worth stockyards, like the old town sort of where the old train goes into like the grapevine train and everything. Oh, it was actually very recently. My, my kid had a school thing down there. Um, like I'd say probably like a month before the lockdown. This reminds me of that so much. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Like the old just the guitar and like the just, you know, ducking between trains and the, I mean, there's dudes dressed old Tommy and yeah. Yeah. All right. So then track 10, we've got across the border. This was the first song we ever talked about from this album. It is because uh, it starts with an A. <laughs> Say what? Because it starts with an A. That's correct. We were that was the premise of the entire first season of the show. Yes. Um, so this is a more hopeful song than most of the other. Than, I, I would argue maybe the most hopeful song in this because it's about people who are like looking across the border and sort of dreaming of, of a better life. It's <laughs> it, this is an interesting placement after seeing like all the different ways that people try and cross the border and it ends up going very very poorly. Like having people who are thinking about crossing the border and having all these like starry dreams in their head. Like that's an interesting juxtaposition, if you will, JB. Yeah. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about the placement of this where it is? Do you feel like this is the right spot on the album or would you have put it earlier? And so, because in my mind, I'm thinking like, what if you put the song really early and just sort of let all these other narratives kind of unfold? Like here's, here's what happens when people do cross the border. It's devastating. Start with some hope. Yeah. But instead he starts very low and he rises to hope after. You could do ghost of Tom Jode and then across the border. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think that it also musically needs because this this couldn't be super early musically because there's just some other songs that not like uplifting, but are just musically like more first half of the record songs. The placement of this song is so weird to me because it sits not not just because it's towards the end after we've sort of seen like Sinaloa, Sinaloa Cowboys and Balboa Park and the line, but but also because it sits between the new timer, which is about a murder. And Galveston, and Galveston Bay, Beth. which is also about a murder, you know. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Like, thematically, I don't. I don't understand exactly why across the border is right here. 
I don't know. Um, it could have been, this could have been track one, side two. You know, like a, a kind of a reset song before you get into like Balboa Park and the line. Yeah. And Galveston, like all the different songs where people die violently. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I don't. I, I like this song a lot. I think it's a very pretty song. I like that there is a hopeful song on this record. It needs it. But I don't. I don't understand why it's here. I don't understand why it's on, why it's track ten of twelve. You know. Yeah, I don't. I don't get that either. It's so weird to go from like, and we'll eat the full the fruit from the vine, and no uh, love and fortune will be mine somewhere across the border, and just to go to talk about like an immigrant murder. Yeah. I think as I'm looking at it, here's what I think I would have done. If I were, I'm going to play a little game called If I Were Bruce Springsteen. Um, All right. So I, if I were Bruce Springsteen, I would have opened with Ghost of Tom Joad, then go into Straight Time, then do Across the Border at track three. Yeah. And then where where it sits now, I would have put Brothers Under the Bridge instead. Okay. Because and, I then, and, and then, then like start away. side two with Youngstown? Yeah, I think, I think Youngstown either... Youngstown should have either closed side one or, or open side two. Open side two. Yeah. Um, and then, I, again, where, where Across the Border currently is is where I would have put – I would have cut Highway 29 entirely, and I would have put um, – track, track 10, I would have put Brothers Under the Bridge, which would have paired really well with Galveston Bay, which is also about um, uh, veterans. You know, so yeah. um, I, I would have I put the I, – I think I would have opened with the, the general concept of Ghost of Tom Joad done the thing about the guy getting out of prison, then across the border, then done a bunch of songs about immigra- immigration, bo- like border, uh, labor, like all that kind of stuff, then close the album by dealing with um, soldiers returning from war and sort of like the fallout, like the racism and the unemployment that kind of came out of that. So yeah. um, it, that that's me. I'm not, I'm not a musical genius. So Bruce could sit here all day, I'm sure, and tell me why I'm wrong. But uh, that's, as I'm kind of going through the album, that's, that's sort of the, that's that's what I'm feeling right now. Yeah. I feel like this is one of those albums where he might say, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, and that's the thing. Is like, I don't know. I don't know what his rationale was. I, I, if, yeah. I, I don't know why he put certain songs in certain places. So then uh, that leads us into track 11, which we mentioned a second ago, which is Galveston Bay. So in the late 1970s, uh, this, this, by the way, JB, is one of the songs when we did it originally, I learned so much about the history of the Gulf Coast of Texas and uh, yeah. Vietnamese refugees. So um, in the late 1970s, the Texas Gulf Coast had an influx of Vietnamese immigrants. So like in in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Uh, And so that led to a lot of racial tension, i.e. resentful white people who were upset about non-white looking people, um, specifically people who looked like what they would have classified as the enemy in Vietnam. So um, and, and so it's about how we other eyes people with no real understanding of who they are or what their lives have been like before today. Because the people who moved here after the Vietnam War were not sympathizers of the Viet Cong. They were refugees who were fleeing the Viet Cong. You know what I mean? And so they were on the same yeah. side as us. Like, we, we were there, in theory, at least, trying to help this group of people. And so so this song is about a guy who sees this, uh, th- this uh, person of Vietnamese origins um, in... in on on the Gulf Coast, and he's furious about it. And so it's we and we talked before about how like so this guy not knowing what to do calls in the Texas clan. Like he orders racism delivery. Um, he he door dashes himself some some good old fashioned Klansman, 
And so then that that all happens, and then there's a murder. Sorry to laugh about that. It just felt like there was a way to make the way to make this story relevant to the crisis. He door dashes, like we all do. Yeah, sure. Uh, he's like some clans. He's like, I don't have access to. Cl- I, I can't just like go out and find my own clans, but I've got to I've got to outsource it. So, um, put out the bat signal. Yeah, um, which is just set and shit on fire. That's right. <laughs> For the Klan. Uh, I, I got to say that I think the Vietnam War was one of the first times that we had really, as a nation, used otherization as a way to train our soldiers. Um, if that makes sense, you know, World War II, uh, a lot of the others uh, look like us. World War One, same thing. No, I mean, Civil War. Go, go back and look at some, some of the uh, World War II promotional material as it related to the Japanese. And um, Well, yes, it definitely happened in, in, in the Pacific theater yes but i think this is like the first full conflict where that was that was the whole you know just the way that they talk about uh japanese soldiers in world war ii was amplified with the way we talked about and treated if you look at the at the some of the crimes uh that were brought up yeah. you know like in egg or whatever after after uh, v- the vietnam conflict um it was it, the you know that's how you get someone to be okay with killing a human that's right it's, it's taking their humanity from them. And, and I, I think that we effectively did that as a nation, all of us then, you know, yes. and not just the military, not that it's okay for the military to do that either. Um, that, and, and I think that's something the military has tried to do a lot less of, um, in, you know, talking to people I know who have served, uh, in Iraq, but uh, as a nation, we have not done less of, but it's certainly how you get public support for sending people to war. Which is yeah. not an easy thing to get. So, right. like part part of part of that getting that support is you have to convince people that the people that were fighting deserve to die, and yeah. you can't do that unless you dehumanize them. And you can't like you're like you're saying like when the war is over, you can't just like it's not a switch. You can't just like shut it off like a faucet. And so, right. so that that animosity and that racism continues to exist, and that's what we see. That's what the song is about. So once again, Bruce writing about something twenty five years ago. That feels really poignant and really relevant exactly right now, you know. Yeah. And and would become even more so five years later. You've got nine eleven, and you've got, um, or I guess six years later, you've got nine eleven, and then the amount of anti-Muslim, anti-Middle Eastern um, violence, like the, the number of hate crimes committed in the U.S. against people who with brown skin um, in two thousand one, two thousand two, like spiked. Because people are ignorant and people don't understand, like, just because a person looks this way, looks like a cartoon villain from from the show 24, doesn't mean that person is your enemy. But we don't, like, yeah. p- people are, people, people are ignorant. <laughs> and so, like, we, 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 our, our brains like shortcuts. And, and a lot of times the shortcuts require a lot of racism and, um, and hatred. And that's what the song is sort of tapping into. And I, I in, in in my opinion, this song is a great illustration of why it's so dangerous when people like Donald Trump use demagoguery to win power. Because it's not just that it's bad for people, people's souls, and it's cruel or mean. It's it's dangerous. If, if you think nobody's gotten hurt because of Trump's rhetoric and because people of, about people of color or immigrants, I've got some very upsetting news for you. Like there, there are people, there are absolutely people who have been killed or hospitalized because someone with a MAGA hat heard a speech or saw a retweet and then they went and they took it out on somebody that they saw at a grocery store, you know, like that absolutely has uh, happened. I have a really good friend, um, who's a teacher at Ole Miss and she is, uh, she is of Indian descent and she had a couple of students of Chinese descent and a couple of just 
just students of general Asian descent, not like, you know, not like first generation Chinese immigrants or anything Mm -hmm. or like exchange students who had things thrown at them in the Walmart parking lot um, before everybody went to quarantine um, because they were um, Chinese or Asian. And, And that's not the only time that happened, even just in Oxford, which is like a very, you know, like multi-racial multicultural uh you know diverse town learned yeah. town yeah so be, and be, because someone yeah, it's disgusting and terrifying with, yeah someone with a very big microphone decided to start calling it the china chinese virus yeah so uh yeah that's that our our words matter and how we talk about other people matters and like stirring up racial animosity is not only is it evil, it's straight up dangerous. Um, so that's our president, ladies and gentlemen. And um, look, if you're upset about me saying that, then ask yourself why you're not upset about our president demagoguing um, other people. You know? Yeah. Don't worry about me. Worry about yourself. Uh... So anyway. <laughs> Pulling no punches today. Yeah, man, it's upsetting. Oh, and, dude, and it's it's yeah. upsetting that uh, a song in 1990, written in 1995 about a time, you know, 20 years before that, that it doesn't seem more outdated. No, I wish it did. I I wish any of these songs felt more anachronistic than they do, but none of them do. Yeah. Um, so it's a real, it's a real bummer. Yeah. It's a real punch to the nards. So another, (laughs) the nards. It's uh, it's, it's, you know, one of the, uh, 20 or 30 things that I'm, uh, Attributing to the reason that I have upped my uh, antidepressant dosage. <laughs> For real, man. Yeah, yeah. Any number. Yeah, any number of reasons. I'm sure. I'm sure you're not alone in that. So, yeah. so then we finally get to the last song, which again I cannot overemphasize. I never remember exists, which is my best was never good enough. And this is the one where he's the most like trying to do the Bob Dylan. Yeah, and it bums me out a little bit. I think you you gave a pretty. Th- full-throated defense of the song when we first covered it, which was because it's, it's just a bunch of like pithy little statements that don't mean anything. And that's what the song is about. It's, it's just about the, like all these platitudes that we offer each other that mean nothing in, in the, in the larger scheme of things. And I, it never occurred to me until very recently that one of the lines where he says stupid is and stupid does and all the rest of that shit, uh, he's quoting Forrest Gump, which stars one of his dearest friends in the world, Tom Hanks. So he's, he's, Tom Hanks. he's taking a direct <laughs> shot at a movie that won an Academy Award for a good friend of his. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if that made, I don't know if that was weird or not unlike myself, Tom Hanks constantly forgets that the song existed. Yeah. So I do too. I think it's, I mean, I didn't give it a great rating. I think I gave it like two and a half or three, but, uh, yeah, it's, I, I just love, I love making fun of these things anyway. So I think that's one reason I kind of like it. I don't love his, his, um, singing i do like the uh f-bomb the early bird catches the effing worm yeah uh which is great i always say uh, there's no such thing as tiny answers just stupid questions no there's no such thing as tiny act there's no such thing as stupid questions just tiny actors <laughs> yeah do you remember <laughs> i like to mix them when you when we first did this did you, you were defending specifically defending this song's placement on this album this is the, like he's done a whole album about marginalization and about talking about seeing the the pain and the struggle of of the unseen and then he closes it with sort of like this like list of fortune cookie statements that don't mean anything so why and i remember you gave a pretty convincing defense of this can you remember why yeah so this this was my defense i don't know that it it, it, 
it's right, but I think this is a, a, a very valid defense. And that is, is when you go to church and terrible things are happening and there are like specific verses in the Bible that in context speak to the very thing and people say shit like everything happens for a reason, you know? Yeah. Or the Lord won't give you anything you can't handle. Right. You know, but like no one in there is doing a GD thing about the least of these, you know? They're just saying these things. They're just saying every cloud has a silver lining. They're just saying sunshine's on a dog's ass some days. And you're saying, well, we've all got six bucks in our pocket, and there's someone sitting on our front steps who hadn't eaten a meal in three days. Yeah. And that's why I think this is a I don't, I don't, I'm not saying this is the right reason to put it on there, but that's, that's to me, that's what this is. So it's an indictment you, on like performative optimism. Yeah. He's like, gives you all of these terrible stories. And at the end of it, he's like, but you know, stupid is stupid does. And you know, Mars going to be tomorrow and the Lord won't give you anything you can't handle. And early bird gets the fucking worm. <laughs> yeah. It is. <laughs> and I of... think that like, that's what he's doing. And I think that if that's what he's doing, it's brilliant. Yeah. It, it does sort of take the piss out of all the the responses that you might receive, like having heard the first 11 songs on this, on this album, having people say, well, you know, like, like you said, like God always has a reason or something like that. Like it, it does. Now that you say it that way, it does sort of feel like Bruce is like, look, miss me with all of those re- responses to these songs. You know, like, yeah, I run wasn't built in a day. Well, it was built in less time than it has taken us to figure some of this shit out. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm preaching over here. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Well, this album is, is a this is a pretty preachy album, really. So it is. Why not? Um, so yeah, not not a great song, but if your interpretation of this is correct, and I have no reason to think that it's not, it is. I, I think it is a clever way to sort of close out this album because it uh, the the only other way to close this album would have been to put across the border at the end to to for for it to sort of rise with a little bit of hope, um, for, because the whole rest of the album is so down, like not unlike how Bruce ends Tunnel of Love with, with Valentine's Day, you know, like, so yeah, kind of like this. All right. We, we, we showed you a lot of the darkness, but at the very least we will, we will continue to hope for a better tomorrow. Um, and across the border can be sort of like the mythologizing or like the, the metaphorical way of seeing, seeing that horizon, but he doesn't do that. He, he does across the border, then goes all the way back down to Galveston Bay. And then he ends it with like, don't come at me with your fortune cookie answers. That means nothing. You know, like that's, yeah, that's probably a, a more honest way of ending this record for where Bruce was. Well, the next to last track is, I mean, the next to last line of the album is come on, pretty baby, call my bluff. Mm, yeah. Prove me wrong. So that was the ghost of Tom Joad. That was it. We did it. Man, I forgot how much I love my best was never good enough. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you asked me because I'm sitting here like, Oh man, you know, it's just a short little song at the end of a record. Uh, I forgot that that was like <laughs> how fired up I get about that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting. It that is makes an interesting me closer. So mad. That makes me so mad. I don't. We were like in a small group the other day, and we were arguing over the semantics of some verse. And they're like, "What do you think it means?" And I was like, "I think it means that everybody in here's got six jackets, and we're still arguing about how many jackets do many jackets when there's someone out there that doesn't have one." You yeah. know, like. <laughs> I'd say six is too many if someone doesn't have one, but it's not a. Uh. Well, that's, that's the, like the famous Mother Teresa quote, a, like a hard issue, and I'm like, I don't think, I don't think, it, I think we're speaking to a hard issue right now. I think the real issue is that somebody is actually cold. Like, yeah, if you yeah if you can respond to someone freezing to death in the street when you have six jackets in your closet, and like if if that is only theoretical to you, then that is a hard issue because your heart has allowed yeah. somebody to freeze to death. So deal. Like, it's like the Sabbath. The Pharisees talking to Jesus about the Sabbath, you know, and he's like, I'm going to heal this guy. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, he's like, what the hell are you guys going to do? What? Are you, why? What are y'all doing? Yeah. Uh, is this not, are you, is this not laborious too? This conversation? Are you not working right now? Yeah. As, as a pastor, one of the most exhausting things is to sit in a room with people who try and like rationalize away their responsibility for caring for other people mm. and using the Bible to do it. Like, well, you know, it's just a hard issue. Yeah. How you, like what you do with your time and energy is a hard issue. Yeah. It's, it, it is an issue of you having sure, a cold heart. So yeah. Um, yeah. We just kept talking to them and they were talking about like, kept talking about like sin and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to confess to you guys the most disgusting sin I've committed in the last year. And everybody's like, what? And a couple people were like, Ooh. And I was like, I walked past a guy who lives without a home in my neighborhood holding two sandwiches the other day that I couldn't decide between. And it was my last day working in this particular office in this particular town. And so I didn't, I, I just decided, you know what? I'm going to eat them both today. And I walked yeah. past him with two sandwiches in my hand. And I went and ate them both, and I still owe that guy a sandwich. That's the biggest sin I've committed. And they were like, oh. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't good enough for you. That was terrible. Right. <laughs> you know, like that was not – because it was a sin against someone, not a sin against myself. Not an you individualized – yeah. Like, yeah, you can't sin against yourself, you know, like sin against someone else. I guess you can't sin against yourself. Anyway, that's what this record's about. Yeah. And this record and, and maybe like, just don't walk past the guy with a sandwich in your hand. And and maybe that is the true power of this this record. Not like, oh, all the songs are really great, but that if you really spend time with it, it's it it, it should create some moral struggle. You know, like we, we should we should wrestle with our inner like where's where's Tom Joad inside of me? You know, because that's that is the that is the thematic question of the whole album. Where is the ghost of Tom Joad? So yeah. um all right, well uh, I forget what are we doing tracks next? Yeah, I think right. so. Well, then we're we're about to go into a long, a long season of talking about tracks. So, um, tracks. and we then just treat like its own decade, and then the rising after that, right? Pretty much, yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll be back in in the feed next week with uh, tracks disc one. It's going to take us four episodes probably to get through all the tracks. So um, buckle up. Are we um, doing live in New York City? Uh, I don't think so because like that's that's another one. I think we've done everything, or we will have done everything on that. We we can mention it in like as it comes up in like other things, but I don't I don't think we need to do it. We did we did the the live with the E Street Band box set because it was such it's such a significant like milestone in the in the timeline, but also because it um it was a best selling record when it came out, so it it felt it yeah. felt incomplete to not talk about that one. But live in New York City is other than like Bruce Springsteen fans. I don't know if a lot of people just went out and bought that, you know. So. I don't. I don't listen to it. I listen to the, uh, you know, seventy-five to eighty-five like pretty regularly. I don't. I never listen to Live in New York. Yeah, I do like Live in New York. Um, I, I prefer yeah, watch, watching the film though. Um, all right. Well, then, uh, yeah, we'll be back ne- back in the feed next time. We're going to talk about uh, tracks, disc one, and uh, now we're gonna we're gonna log off and we're gonna go over to the patron feed and we're gonna talk about our top five albums from the nineteen nineties. So until we next should, time, real quick. What? Speaking of Live in New York, though, we should note the young the version of Youngstown on Live in New York is its own song. It's and straight it up kills. fire. It's so so good. Yeah, yeah. it's so good. Anyway, sorry. No, no, no. That was good. Uh, That's a good note to end. Yeah, on. Patriot Feed episode. We're doing top five or more records from the '90s because that was the first decade that you and I got to choose to hear our own music and explore music. We got to live in of our own volition. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, then uh, we'll see everybody next time. And uh, for the patrons, we'll see you in a few minutes when we talk about top five albums from the 90s. See you later. Woo-hoo!